And uh, it's a great opportunity this morning. I'm delighted to be able to open God's Word with you. But before we do that, let's uh, ask that God would bless our time together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to ask uh, most Australians what the good life was, uh, we've already asked the kids what they think the good life was, uh, but if you were to ask most Australians what they thought the good life was, I suspect that most of them would say the kinds of things that we've already heard. That is, they want a pleasant life, a life that's enjoyable, and a life that's rewarding. A number of years, uh, the secular Australian sociologist Hugh Mackay wrote a book called The Good Life, and in it he describes, at least at the beginning, he describes how many Australians live with what he calls the utopia complex, this this, uh, aspiration for a good life. He writes, holidays should be havens of happiness, islands of perfection in a choppy sea of imperfection. We should plan them carefully and execute them in ways that allow us to come as close as possible to our ideal selves. Work should be fun, or if not fun, then at least stimulating and satisfying. So should marriage. The kids themselves should be gifted in ways that make them worthy of special attention by perfect teachers who are perfectly attuned to the peculiar talents and circumstances of each child, especially ours, and to the expectations of its parents, especially us. All we want is heaven on earth. Is that too much to ask? Well, it's the aspiration, isn't it, that most uh, of us live with and many Australians live with. But Humakai says, actually, that aspiration is ultimately dissatisfying. It's ultimately actually uh, fleeting and unachievable. And his response to this longing after this utopia complex, his response is surprisingly refreshing. His answer is that we should live not for this utopian ideal, he says, but we should live according to the golden rule. That is, that rule of Jesus. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Humakai says, if we live according to that, then, then we'll have a good life and we'll have a good world. But will that actually lead to a good life? That's the question. The answer, surprisingly, that Psalm 1 gives us is that that teaching of Jesus, taken on its own, apart from everything else that the Bible teaches, actually won't lead to the good life. Because there's something deeper, something more foundational, something far more important that undergirds those words of Jesus. And that's what this psalm is all about. It's about that foundation that we need in order to live a good life. So what does this uh, psalm teach us? Well, it begins not by telling us what leads to a good life, but it begins by telling us what doesn't lead to a good life. It says in verse 1, Blessed is the one who doesn't walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. There's this picture here of a slow decline, a slow movement I don't know if you've ever seen the paintings, but there are some famous paintings by William Hogarth, uh, ironically entitled The Rake's Progress. The first one there is up on the screen, 
won't show you all eight, but in this one, he comes into a rich inheritance. He's getting measured up for a new suit. But over the subsequent paintings, everything begins to fall apart. He starts off well, but then he dumps his girlfriend. The second painting shows him throwing a lavish party. He's, He's throwing away his money. The third depicts him in a tavern surrounded by prostitutes. In the fourth, he's lost all his money and he's narrowly escaping unpaid debts. The fifth has him desperately marrying an elderly rich lady in the hope of trying to get her fortune. The sixth sees him in a casino, the seventh in prison, and finally, in the last one, which will come up as well, he's in the madhouse. There's this slow decline from riches to poverty. Aspirations of a great life crumbled. And here in Psalm 1, there's a kind of a rake's progress as well. Great aspirations, but then a decline. A movement from walking to standing and finally to sitting. There's this increasing comfort and ease with wickedness and evil. I don't know if you've ever heard the expression, sow a thought and reap a deed, sow a deed and reap a habit, sow a habit and reap a character, sow a character and reap a destiny. It's this idea of a decline, of a hardening, of a fixation that grows. Here in this psalm, the first step is listening. Listening or walking to the advice of those who don't know God, what the psalm calls the wicked. It begins with who we listen to. Then it degenerates to standing in the same ways and habits of those that we've listened to. And finally it ends with mocking and ridiculing the very things that we once held dear. It's a common enough script, I think, that we're probably aware of at some level. That is, if we spend time, our time around people who are fixed on certain things, in the end, our thoughts, our attitudes, and ultimately our behaviours will be shaped by those people as well. So if we spend our time around those whose every desire and every uh, motivation is to have whatever it is that they want, then sooner or later we'll begin to hear their stories of the things that they've acquired for themselves, the great life that they appear to be living, and we'll begin to absorb those, and our hearts will begin to be shaped by those ideas. And our hearts having been shaped will begin to live in those ways. We'll begin to stand in the ways that sinners take, this psalm says. And finally, we'll become so mired in those ways that those who criticise what we're doing will mock will deride, will make fun of them. It begins seeming a way of such promise, but ends in a way which is disaster. And that's what this psalm is talking about. But it's not just talking about doing that uh, with respect to greed, and it's not just talking about doing that with respect to any other kind of evil or sin that we might fill in the blank with. The great concern of this psalm is not just moving to greed, but it's moving away from God. It's moving away from the God who made us and who loves us and who calls us to know him, who calls us to turn to him 
and to have a relationship with him. All of us, you see, are born into this world, a world where the glory and the uh, beauty and the honour and the love of God is on display. The, the, the order of this world, the structure of this world testifies to the goodness of God, a God who made us. And although that knowledge of God is obscured by our ignorance of him and our rebellion against him, there are still these echoes of God's goodness printed in our world and in our lives. We still feel some of those reverberations, those echoes. We still feel this sense of responsibility, for example, for God's creation. That's an echo of the goodness of God. We still know that some things are wrong, that it's wrong to hate others. To, to murder, to steal. We know those things are wrong. And we know the experience of some of the good things that God has created us to enjoy, some of the overflows of, of his goodness and his character, the love that we have for one another and that we receive from, other, from others. Those are echoes of the goodness of God. We're born into this world where the fingerprints of God are everywhere. But the question that we're all faced with every day, according to this psalm, is whether or not we'll embrace that God whose fingerprints we see, or whether over time we'll walk further and further away from him. As we listen to those who don't know him, as we begin to absorb their habits, and as we begin to sit in their way. This psalm says that the way to a good life is not, not the way that leads away from God. So that's the first thing. The way to a good life is not the way away from God. But verse 2, it is something else. The blessed person, that is the enviable, the happy, the, the, the person who's enjoying this good life. This person is the one whose delight is in the law of God and who meditates on his Lord day and night. So notice, secondly, then, what the opposite of verse 1 isn't. So you might think that the opposite of, of walking and standing and sitting uh, in the way of sinners, of those who don't know God, you would maybe think that the opposite of that is to walk in better ways, uh, to do the right thing. But actually, that isn't first and foremost what the psalm says. Those things, sure, will come later on in the life of the blessed person. But the opposite of uh, walking, standing, and sitting in the way of sinners is not walking, standing, and sitting in the way of righteous people, but rather it's the way of delighting in and meditating on God's word. The way of sinners begins by listening to the counsel of those who don't know God. The way of the blessed begins by listening to God. What's extraordinary in this psalm is that the secret source of the good life of a person's blessing is not our sinless perfection, it's not heroic obedience. Rather, it's listening to God and what he has to say to us. Verse 2 describes it as delighting and meditating on God's law, we might think of that as just God's commands, but really the expression there is something bigger than that. It's really all God's instructions to us. And this idea of meditation is not 
emptying our minds of all content, but it is carries this idea of speaking to yourself under your breath, muttering things to yourself. The idea is of taking the words of God that he's spoken to us and muttering them to ourselves, reminding ourselves of the truth of God's words. That kind of behavior is plastered all the way through the Psalms. This Psalm begins as a doorway into 149 other Psalms that all demonstrate this kind of attitude. So Psalm 4 begins with David in distress, but then he mutters to himself and he says at the end of that psalm, in peace I'll lie down and sleep, for you, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Or Psalm 16, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, apart from you I have no good thing. Or Psalm 23, the Lord's my shepherd, there's nothing that I need that I don't have. Again and again the writers of the psalms remind themselves mutter to themselves these truths of God. And so this idea here in Psalm 1, what is the way of the blessed person? What is the the way that leads to the good life? The way is one of delighting in and meditating on God's words, which is just another way of saying. It's the way of receiving God's words, believing them, taking them into our heart and trusting them. If we want to live a blessed and happy life, be fruitful people. God says the way is by receiving his words and believing them. And so whatever our situation is, we need to keep reminding ourselves of those truths of God in the face of the challenges, in the face of whatever it is that we're experiencing, we remind ourselves. So when life is good, when we've experienced the wonderful kindness of God, we can say, I'll give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I'll tell of all your wonderful deeds. When we see the glory of God in the world around us, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When we discover again with freshness and reality the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ, bless the Lord, O my soul, Bless the Lord, all my inmost being, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. When we feel alone and abandoned, Lord, why do you stand so far off? When people around us tell us that God is a figment of our imagination, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. And of course, the most important words that we need to remind ourselves of are the words of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, it's not that any of these words have a magic in and of themselves that if we say them, that they'll create their own reality. The idea is not that we speak our desired future into existence. It's not a mantra, everything is okay, everything is okay, everything is wonderful. It's not what this is talking about. The idea in this psalm is not that the words are powerful in and of themselves. Rather, the idea is that the words are powerful because the God who speaks them is powerful. 
And when we receive the words of this powerful God who made us, and when we repeat them to ourselves and take them into our hearts and believe them, we receive the promises of this powerful God and we receive his blessing. So the psalm shows us that the way to a good life is not the way that leads away from God, but it's the way that takes God's words to heart. And then in the rest of the psalm, we get a picture of what that good life that results looks like. So look at verse 3. That person, this person who believes God's word, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Now, it's helpful to know that in Israel, the land where the Psalms were written, or this Psalm in particular was written, uh, it was a place where there were many wadis. Now, a wadi is a kind of a, a riverbed that for most of the time is dry, but then the rain comes and the rivers fill up with water, and as they do, they, the desert, which is normally barren, springs to life. Uh, it's a little bit like Lake Eyre. Uh, there's a picture up there of Lake Eyre, which is in the middle of Australia, uh, and that's a picture of what it normally looks like. It's barren, nothing really much is growing there. You couldn't live there, you couldn't plant anything there and live off it. But every now and again, it rains in far-off places, in places like Queensland, and the water travels through uh, river systems and eventually makes its way into Lake Eyre and it springs to life. There should be another picture of that as well. And you can, be, you can see there that what was barren and lifeless is now beginning to green, birds fly there from all over the continents, uh, things begin to grow, uh, and life comes to this barren wilderness. But the thing about Lake Air is that although there are these times when it's full of life, there are also these times when it's barren. And so it will move from that again back to the Red Desert. But the thing about this picture in Psalm 1 is, this psalm here is saying that our life, the life of those who know God, who receive his words and take them to heart, the life of that person is not a feast and famine existence of Lake Eyre. It's not barren one day and life the next, and then barren again the day after. Rather, the picture here is of a person permanently placed permanently situated on this never-ending stream of water. It's a tree, we're told, that bears its fruit in season at the right time, whose leaf doesn't wither. The person who receives God's word and cherishes them is not living this feast and famine existence, but is living the good life of God's constant blessing. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I have to admit that sometimes, maybe more often than not, I find life pretty tiring, pretty exhausting. There's so many responsibilities. And sometimes, even by Monday afternoon, you're thinking, goodness me, uh, it's still four, four days to the weekend. How am I going to make it to the end of the week? And maybe you feel the same way sometimes. Maybe it's not even Monday and you're already beginning to think, how am I going to make it through to the end of the week? 
And there can be all kinds of reasons for that, can't there? There can be sickness, ill health. Maybe it's difficulty in dealing with a, with a child. Maybe there are challenges in marriage. Maybe you're being asked to continue to show the love of Christ in a marriage that seems loveless. Maybe you've been laboring away in ministry, helping poor and needy people, supporting a colleague at work, reading the Bible with others in the hope that they might come to faith or might grow in their faith, leading a ministry at church. You can do all those wonderful things, but sometimes you feel discouraged, burdened, hurt by criticism. How do we keep going in those circumstances? How do we keep showing the costly Christ-like love that we're called to show? This psalm tells us. It tells us that the person who delights in God's words is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and whose leaf doesn't wither. Whatever they do prospers not a promise that life will always be amazing, but it is a promise that there'll always be sustenance, that our leaf will never wither, that will never dry out. And though there might be times of winter, times when the fruit doesn't seem to be appearing, spring will certainly come. We trust God and receive his words, believe them, his words about Christ. If we hold on to them, then God will bless us with his constant refreshment and constant life. So the psalm gives us this picture of what the good life is like, but it doesn't end there. It ends there with a contrast. It ends with a warning. Look at verse 4. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Now, chaff, you might know, we've heard before a little bit, the chaff was, uh, when you gather the grain, they would bring it into a packed uh, kind of hard earth surface and they would smash it, with, uh, beat it with what was called a winnowing shovel and then they would uh, take it with the shovel and throw it up in the air and the and the husk, which had been broken away, would fly off into the wind and disappear, and the heavier uh, grain, the useful grain, would fall back to the ground and could be gathered up and used. And this psalm says that those who are travelling on that way, away from God, of walking and standing and sitting, says those people are like chaff. They're blown away by the wind. Never seen again. In contrast to those who are planted by streams of water, they disappear. You could be a, a Nobel laureate, you could be the most wonderfully, kind of achieve the greatest things that could possibly be achieved in human existence. You could devote your life to restoring the sight of the blind or reducing poverty. You could leave an incredible legacy. You could build billion-dollar companies, 
transform the face of society. But the psalm says that if we don't know Christ, we don't take God's words into our heart, then the chaff, blown away. Look at verse 5. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. A day is coming for those who walk away from God. A day of judgment, a day of reckoning. They won't last forever receiving God's blessing, but they will receive the judgment of God. Even the greatest person with the greatest achievements, this psalm says, is nothing if they walk away from God. There are only two ways to live. The way of receiving God's words and blessing or the way of turning away from God and judgment. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who has spoken and has made yourself known to us. Lord, we see your glory in the heavens every day. But Lord, we also hear clearly of you in the scriptures in the Bible. Lord, please help us to hear your words by the power of your spirit and help us to take them to heart that we might be blessed by you through Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.